Okay, everybody, should we come on back together? Um, like I said, my name is Philip. If you don't know me, we're going to teach from the Bible as we do every week at King's. And if you are new, you've picked a good week to be here because we're going to be uh, starting a brand new teaching series from the Bible. Um, so without further ado, if you have yours, you can get into John chapter 4. And I'm going to read the first 10 verses, then kind of just intro the series a bit, and then we'll dive back into the rest of the passage. And uh, yes, if you are part of this, if you have been part of the church for any time at all, you'll know that John 4 is an increasingly significant kind of passage in the life of our church. So let me read it. And like I say, we'll unpack the context to the the passage and indeed to the series that we're about to launch into. So, John chapter 4 and verse 1. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself didn't baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour, so midday. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And if you know the story, as it goes on, Jesus continues to build quite a remarkable connection with this, uh, with this woman. And as he does that, he begins not only to connect himself to her on a human level, he begins to connect her to God through him. And as the story carries on even more, not only does that happen, but she very naturally leaves and goes back to her friends and her community and begins to connect them to God in Jesus And the new series that we're starting is called Connect. And the reason behind that is we want to spend six weeks, in simple terms, learning about what it is to be evangelistic. What it is, in other words, to genuinely be able to connect to people, people who don't know the love of God, and help them, in turn, to encounter the love of God. And uh, this story is a significant one. I know many of you will have already heard me and other pastors teach on it during our vision series. It kind of helped shape our new team. It helped shape our vision series and value series last September. Uh, But it can continue to help shape us. The word of God is so powerful in that sense. People who read passages again after 50, 60 years will still find God teaching them new things through the same passage. So my excitement is that as we learn to be equipped for evangelism, this wonderful passage is going to do just that. We won't only be in it six weeks, but it will kind of launch us out to different parts of the Bible each week. So I'm going to learn what it is to help be more fruitful, more effective, more excited, I trust, about connecting to people in order that we might help them connect to the love of God in Jesus Christ. And that is at the heart of what most Christians are called to do. I don't think many Christians, no matter how we feel about evangelism, would dispute the fact that it's something Christians should do. It's kind of part of what the church has always done. It's part of certainly what this church is about. In our language, we call it making God known. Christians have always believed that it's vitally important, in simple terms, tell people about the good news of God in Jesus Christ. 
That's part of the story of the church, the story of the Bible. You go back to Abraham before the church, and God commissions Abraham and says, you're going to have a whole people, a people group will be my people, but their ultimate task, their commission, will be not only to enjoy the blessing of God, but to give away the blessing of God to all peoples, God says. And you fast forward towards one of Abraham's descendants, Jesus Christ, and of course he commissions famously everyone who would follow him to do the same thing, to tell others about the good news of God in Jesus Christ. It's how the church grew from 120 in an up and room somewhere in 30 odd AD to 2 billion or so today because people told other people about good news. And I would suspect it's why most of us who are Christians here this morning, it's why most of us are Christians because somebody told us in simple, and probably a number of people told us. It might have been parents initially. It might have been friends later on. It might have been strangers. But most of us are Christians because somebody, in simple terms, evangelized or told us or demonstrated to us something of the love of God in Jesus Christ. Now, often, people who are like perhaps skeptical of the Christian faith or hostile to it might be particularly skeptical about the idea of evangelism, about the idea of, you might call it, proselytizing, telling people that what you think is good, not only good, but true. That's something that people are increasingly nervous about. You might be here this morning and thinking the same thing. And if you are, I'm really glad that you're here. It's a good morning to be here. And there's not always, there are some good reasons that people are nervous about Christians evangelizing, because we haven't always done it very well. At times, Christians have been clumsy or or even aggressive in trying to proclaim the good news. But a number of what you might call thoughtful atheists, I'm sure you know a few, I know a few, thoughtful atheists, thoughtful skeptics seem increasingly able to distinguish between the weather Christians should tell people about Christ and the how they might go on and do it. And actually, for a number of thoughtful atheists that I've I've encountered, the whether we should do it or not is a given. Let me give you one example. If you are a child or a teenager or a youngster of the 1980s, you might remember Penn Gillette uh, of Penn and Teller fame. They were these 80s magicians. He's quite an interesting uh, atheist thinker. Um, And he was at a... uh, um, doing one of his shows, and after one of his shows, a, a, an older man came up to him and gave him, gave him a Bible. And, uh, and Penn Gillette spoke very well of this, this man, said he was very he was kind, gracious, uh, kind-hearted man. They had a good discussion over this, this gift of, of, his, uh, of the Bible. And after that, Penn Gillette reflected this. This is what he said as a, as a convinced atheist. He said, I've always said I don't respect people who don't proselytize. It's another word for evangelism. I don't respect that at all. If you believe there is a heaven and hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever and you think it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward, how much do you have to hate someone to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate someone to believe everlasting everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? And that's somebody who's a convinced atheist, not just skeptical, but convinced that the things that we hold dearer are Untrue, to put it mildly. But logically for him, it's perfectly logical that Christians would be on the front foot telling people about what they're convinced that is true. 
And also, what Pendulet is described as the Christian faith is partly true. The reality of heaven and hell is something that's part of our message, should be part of our message, but it's, 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 not, it's only a part of the message. The good news is much better than that that Pendulet is putting to us. The good news is that we can know God now, not simply in eternity, that we can enjoy his love for us now, in the present. Indeed, that we can draw down something of the heavenly inheritance into the present, into earth. That we can be loved and redeemed and forgiven and be given a brand new life to enjoy right now as a foretaste of what lies beyond the grave. It's better news than that which is, uh, he's, he's putting to us. It's good news. And some Christians love talking about this. Some of you do. Some of you are very uh, loving and gracious and skillful at doing it. But some of us, and I'll probably put my hand up here to some degree, we don't always find it easy. Some Christians, I think, a number of Christians, and I'm just putting my hand up and you can join me if you, if you want to, we find it sometimes difficult to tell other people about the good news of Jesus. We might find it awkward or, or the words kind of escape us or we find people are perhaps apathetic or hostile or seem to be so to what we're talking about. Maybe we've been disappointed in the, far, in the past. A number of us might have really gone for these things, to, 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 to be witnesses of this good news and have found it to be disappointing, found it to be hard, found that we've been rejected either overtly or subtly. One of the things that leapt out for me for the first time in this passage, as I told you it can keep teaching you things, is in verse six I just read to you, when Jesus gets to the well, don't miss the fact that it says he was weary. He was weary. Now we leap on to what happened, this remarkable encounter, but when this moment began, Jesus is just tired after a long commute. He's had a long commute all the way to Galilee via Samaria, and he's exhausted. It's so good to know that God has put himself in our position. Long day, long commute, tired, what's he gonna do? Is he gonna engage with somebody and begin to point them towards the love of God in Christ? If you are weary, for whatever reason, about evangelism, There's good news for you this morning. Jesus begins this story weary. And if you are a Christian, you are united to him. So you can follow him as he becomes fruitful and dynamic in making God known. In the rest of this series, we're going to look look at some of the hows. We're going to equip each other or let Jesus and indeed this remarkable woman equip us for some of the hows. Whether it's how to tell our story, how to make invitations, how to use spiritual gifts and so forth. But for today, I don't want to get into the hows. I want to more kind of ground us and help us, I think, through the passage, through God's word, to be peaceful, to be secure, to be confident. I've called this message Connecting Confidently. So let's get back into the passage, verse 11. Jesus continues his conversation with this woman. He's talking in metaphors about water. She's speaking literally about living water. I want you to see just how many reasons we have as Christians to be really confident, calm, and peaceful as we engage in evangelism. Verse 11, the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? Because the Samaritans had some crossover with Jewish ancestry. He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come to draw water at this well. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. 
Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husbands, for you've had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming. It is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I, I know the Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They, they marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar. She went away into town and she said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone bought them something to eat? <laughs> Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say, there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Just quoting a colloquial saying of the time. He goes on to say, look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows, another weeps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Jesus loves an agricultural metaphor, doesn't he? Particularly to speak to his audience at the time. Verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the savior of the world. It's a long passage, but we'll kind of camp out in it and return to it each week for the next, for the next six and this morning I want to land this idea with you that we have as Christians every reason to be confident in helping to connect people to the love of God. By confident, I clearly don't mean brash or arrogant or clumsy. By confident, I mean secure and peaceful and poised and calm and courageous. And the reason that we can be confident is in simple terms, Jesus. Jesus is the subject of this message. He's the subject of most messages, every message I trust. And in simple terms, if you hear nothing else this morning, Jesus is the reason why we can confidently connect people to Jesus. Specifically, these next four points I'm going to go through. Jesus' commission, Jesus' message, Jesus' work, and Jesus' presence. Jesus' commission, his message, his work, and his presence. And my prayer is those four are going to build confidence and peace and security and courage into you this morning. Number one, Jesus' commission. And then we're going to worship at the end and ask Jesus just to continue to in, encounter us, bless us, encourage us, speak to us, steadfast us. That's not even a word, but there is this morning. Jesus' commission. 
Now, I imagine if you've been a Christian for any time at all, you're familiar with what's known in the Bible as the Great Commission. In Matthew 28, Jesus commissions the disciples to go and do what I've just been describing. But often we miss the preceding couple of verses. Verse 16 in Matthew 28. Now, the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Now, we need to, you can kind of gloss over that. Oh, yeah, the Great Commission comes, and it's the beginning of the church. And so this is the risen Jesus in physical, bodily form. People are encountering, he's about to ascend to the right hand of the Father. People are encountering the wonder of the risen Lord. They're worshiping, so people are maybe on their knees, or lifting their hands, or singing, or praying, or enjoying, or thanking him. And he's physically present with them. And some doubted. <laughs> Why? Why? I have no idea. The risen Lord Jesus is physically there with him. It's a, the most unbelievable worship service of all times happening on this mountain. And some people are going, yeah, I'm not really sure, too sure. A couple of points. One, doubt is always at play in the story of God. And Jesus loves to minister to us in it. Two, what I find fascinating is Jesus then commissions everyone Who's that was on that mountain? And indeed, all of us who read these words, Jesus commissions all of them. Next verse. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Everyone gets commissioned. He didn't say, right, you dubious ones. Your job is to hunker down and wait for me to return. The rest of you, passionate worshippers, we're going to get to business making my name known. Just commissions, all of them. All of them are commissions. If you doubt, genuinely, deep down, you doubt you're part of God's plan as a Christian to make him known, join the club. That's how it started. Don't doubt your commission. Your commission is not based on you. It's not based on your skill, your history, your fruitfulness, your age, your gender. It's based on the one who gives you a commission. Any ambassador worth his salt around the world knows he has authority and knows that he is there because the government has commissioned him to go. I can't rock up in Ethiopia and say, I'm the ambassador of Great Britain. They're going to throw me out. But if I've been commissioned by the prime minister... That's what I'm going to refer to. If you're a Christian, you've been commissioned by Jesus Christ. The question is, do you believe that? Because we find so many reasons to doubt whether, am I really somebody who's going to lead other people to experience and encounter the love of Christ for themselves? Some of us have never led anybody to Christ. And so we can think, well, that probably means I'm just not one of the evangelists. Of course, God in his goodness gives people with their specific evangelistic gifting and heart to the life of the church. But here, at the beginning of the church, everyone gets commissioned. This morning, it's for some of us to freshly receive a fresh commissioning, not from Philip, because he's trying to whip you up into a frenzy of evangelistic fervor, from Jesus, who told the worshippers and the doubters, you're in me, you're commissioned. God's always operated like this. I want to sort of hammer this point home. God's always chosen unlikely people to help connect other people to him. Old Testament, think about Jonah. Zero faith, zero obedience, zero love for people. God chooses him and stays patient with him and uses him to proclaim this wonderful message of repentance and hope to people that were outside of his race and nation. 
Who does the resurrected Jesus first appear to? Mary, a formerly demon-possessed woman whose testimony was worth nothing in the court of law at that time, and Jesus chooses her and effectively commissions her, go and make my risen reality and lordship known. It's not about male or female or age or maturity in Christ. Jesus is making a point, I think. He takes that woman and says, you, you go. And tell the ones who think they know all about it, go and tell them what you've seen. The Apostle Paul, on his way to go and kill Christians, Jesus knocks him off his horse and commissions him to go and help people become Christians. Couldn't it be more unlikely? And then this precious woman in this passage in John 4, this Samaritan woman, so unlikely in so many ways, as we'll dig into throughout the series. And without even being commissioned in reality, she goes. She says to people, come and meet this man. He told me everything I ever did. If you think, if you doubt whether Jesus commissions you, that's not a bad place to be in. But don't stay there. Don't stay there. Yes, confess your weakness. And look at the story of the Bible where God loves taking weak people and using them to make his glorious splendor known. Mainly so that no one's in any doubt that it's not about you. (laughs) So it's about him. So King Church, I want to freshly commission you, us, this morning, in Jesus' name, by Jesus' Holy Spirit, to do Jesus' work of pointing and inviting other people to experience and encounter him. So I'm just going to pray, that's all right. Holy Spirit, just in this moment, I pray on all who wish to receive your fresh commissioning, would you just come and rest in a fresh way? And would you apply the truth of Jesus' words, not just to our minds, but to our very souls. And whether we feel something dramatic or not, would we know that we're freshly commissioned? Amen. I want to tell you a a short story just to kind of further emphasize the point. I don't know if you've come across the story of a, a man called Professor Francis Collins. Back up to the present day now, just to kind of make sure that we understand what I'm saying. Uh, he uh, was a remarkable uh, scientist. He was the head of the he- Human Genome Project at the turn of the 21st century. Uh, and he's also the uh, director of the National Institute for Health in the USA. Pretty sharp mind, to put it mildly. Uh, he was an atheist as a young man, atheist as a young doctor. And he tells the story uh, of how he was a young doctor ministering, not ministering, uh, well, I guess ministering, yeah, through uh, his health, his medical profession, to a very sick elderly lady. Had a very serious heart condition, and she'd been through some quite serious uh, treatment. And he was treating her, and she began to tell him as to how her faith in Jesus is what helped her to go through what she was going through. She just said that, my faith in Jesus is what helps me the most. Thank you, doctor, for treating me. My faith in Jesus helps me the most. And he tells the story, he says, I, I listened to this, um, this woman, And as she was telling her story, he says that suddenly she just kind of looked him quite pointedly in the eye and said, that's what I believe, doctor. What do you believe? And uh, he said that in that moment, he realized, to quote him, that he had arrived at the biggest question there is, is there a God, without actually looking at the evidence. And very humbly, he says, I'm supposed to be a scientist. 
So he went from that moment of just being provoked by this elderly lady and he applied his considerable mind to some of the big questions of how did the universe get here and is there a design behind it and what does the fine tuning of the universe tell us about who might be behind it and he read C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity and loved kind of meeting a similar um, mighty academic mind and he met with a, a pastor and so forth and eventually he came to the conclusion I need to investigate Jesus and he did that and he came to the conclusion not only is there a designer behind this universe we're not here by accident a combination of time, chance, and space were here on purpose, he came to the conclusion that Jesus Christ really did rise from the dead and so was God. And since then, he hasn't stopped being a scientist. He's carried on being an incredible scientist for the glory of God, understanding how our genetics work and how we can treat diseases better as a result. Also, helping people to see there's no, there's no it's a false dichotomy to say that science and faith clash. Helping people to see that his science is credible as is his faith. He's done remarkable, remarkable things, both for science and even more for the glory of God. My point is, who started connecting him to God? Was it some incredible academic invited him into his office or into his lab? Was it an amazing Christian apologist on a stage who had all these clever answers? Was this elderly lady not well, clearly experiencing for herself the beauty and the grace and the sufficiency of Christ and confident that she too was commissioned to make Christ known. What do you believe, doctor? That begins this incredible journey towards God, which in turn has led many others towards God. We're all commissioned if we're united to Jesus. I've taken a while on that point. I'll be much quicker with the other three. Number two, Jesus' message Jesus' message. Verse 13, Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So the woman, the woman thinks there's a conversation about literal water. Jesus talking in metaphors about living water. And Jesus is basically saying, big claim, he's saying, the message is, in me there is a message that will cause you to live a life of satisfaction. That's what living water brings. Later in verse 26, he says to her, I am he, meaning I am the Messiah. I'm the Christ. I'm the one the Old Testament prophets that you have some familiarity with have been speaking about. I don't know, but I wonder if he was thinking about Isaiah 55 when 700 years before, won't be on the screen, I'll read it to you. God says, come all you who are thirsty, come to the waters and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and your soul will delight in the richest of fare. And 700 years later, Jesus says to this woman, I am him. The one who can give your soul the richest of fare. The message of Jesus is the second reason why we should have great confidence. It is good news. It's a, it's a piece of news that we can tell people in different ways through different means. The good news of Jesus Christ satisfies the cravings and desires of your soul. That's what Jesus is saying to this woman. And that's what we have a message to tell people about. So we can say things to like, like to people. If you, if you long to be both fully known, warts and all, and yet long to be loved and approved at the same time, come to Jesus. That's the message that we have. You long to know what truth actually is, what's fake and what's true, and whether knowing what's true leads to a life of grace and compassion, come to Jesus. You long to know that death is not actually the end, come to Jesus. You long to have that inner itch and scratch of guilt and shame that we can't rub out. You long to have it erased and forgiven, come to Jesus. 
He longed to have a, a purpose in life, a meaning in life that no suffering and disappointment that can derail come to Jesus. We have a message that is good news, a message that can bring genuine fulfillment and satisfaction to the soul. It should make us confident. The gospel all of itself is a power. Apostle Paul says it has the power for salvation. The power is not in you and I. It's such good news. The power exists in the message. And we can frame it in all kinds of ways. Jesus framed it like, do you want to know what it is to drink something and never be thirsty again? He's like, do you want to know what it is to go through life genuinely satisfied? Drink from what I will give you. It has a power all of its own. So Murray and Lauren were sharing just now about youth, about the, about the youth. Murray's story really fascinates me on this point because he was thinking, in simple terms, I've asked him if I could share this, he was thinking in simple terms, life is not satisfied for various reasons. So he chose, remarkably, to open the Bible and read it for himself on his own. And he found that the message contained within it was indeed satisfying, was indeed compelling. He gave gave his life to Christ simply by reading the Bible on his own. Why? Because it has a power all of its own. That's such good news. None of us did anything. Nothing at all. He rocked up here one day and said, I've been reading the Bible. Um, I believe this, this, and this. I think I'm a Christian. Can I get baptized? Why? Because the message has a power all of its own and we get to proclaim it in different ways. Number three, Jesus' work also gives us cause for confidence. What do I mean by that? Verse 35, more metaphors. Look, I tell you, Jesus said, lift up your eyes. See that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together for here the saying holds true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you didn't labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Now Jesus is speaking all kinds of layers of meaning. He's speaking about the Old Testament prophets, perhaps who've labored and you're there reaping on the back of that. Maybe about John the Baptist who's just been and they're reaping off the back of that. Probably speaking about himself most of all. Saying, I have and will labor. I will sow and you get to reap. And the gospel is this, that Jesus Christ loved people so much that he sowed himself into the ground, into the grave, knowing that what is sowed and died brings life, bringing about resurrection life and a harvest. That's what he says, that's what he means when he says the harvest is white, i.e. ripe, ready. Why? Because ultimately he went to sow himself. Elsewhere, he said the harvest is plentiful in Matthew 9, 37. We can be confident because the work is done. Yes, we talk in language of sowing seeds. Of course we do. But what Jesus is saying here is people have, and ultimately I will, sow my very self, and there will be a harvest. You just get to reap it. You just get to reap it. I'm not sure we always believe that. I think we have to somehow conjure up something. We don't conjure up any salvation in anybody. None of us has the power to change a human heart Jesus has that power, his message has that power, his work has that power, there is a harvest as that power is at work all around the world, including maybe in this room, and our job as Christians is simply to work out what God is doing, upon whom, and come alongside, and potentially reap a harvest. His work is done. I love what the uh, community that the Samaritan woman goes back to say in verse 42. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you have said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves, and we know this is indeed the saviour of the world. In other words, they're saying to her, your invitation to come and see Jesus was important. 
We'll look at invitations in this, in, this, in this series. Your testimony, your story of what Jesus has done for you was important. We'll look at that at the end of this series. But ultimately, they're saying, what actually caused us to be saved was Jesus himself. That is, again, such good news. Jesus uses us, partners with us through stories and invitations and all the things that he calls us to. But even these people, before the gospel actually is that played out, they're saying, yeah, your invitation was okay, helpful. Like, we started to wonder about Jesus because of what you were doing, but we didn't really believe. Then we met Jesus for ourselves, and now we know. That's all that we're called to do. Point people towards Jesus. Come and see this extraordinary man who is God. So, I trust we're beginning to be freshly confident because of Jesus' commissioning, the power of his message, and the fact that he's the one that does the sowing. He does all the work of salvation. We can't save a soul, but we reap with him. But I wonder whether that actually empowers us to go and act on this growing confidence. What empowers us? Well, it's this. Jesus' presence. Jesus' presence. Last point. This Samaritan woman is the most natural evangelist in the world. She wasn't even commissioned. No training. The gospel, the perfect life and death and victorious resurrection of Jesus Christ, hasn't even happened yet. Yet she's the most natural evangelist in the world. Why? Because she spent time with Jesus. She encountered Jesus for herself. She sat in the presence of this extraordinary man who was God. And it was the most obvious thing in the world to go and tell other people. Again, this is good news. She's just undone by his perfect knowledge of her. And all of her past upset and the hurt of husbands who died or divorced her and the, the cultural shame that had brought. He knows about that. He uses a word of knowledge. We'll look at that in the series as well. Cuts right to her heart of who she is and her past and loves her right in there. Which is what love is, isn't it? If you don't know someone, then claims of love are just fluffy and meaningless. You've got to know someone, haven't you? Warts and all for your love to be powerful and meaningful. She experiences that and she's off to go and tell other people. King says, you want to bring people to Jesus? Just bring yourself to Jesus, first and foremost. This morning, just bring yourself to Jesus afresh. As we worship in a moment, let's just bring ourselves to Jesus. In fact, I wonder whether the band can, can join me as I just begin to transition into worship and response. What did Jesus say the Father was ultimately looking for? And if you spotted that in the passage, a long passage. Verse 24. I would love Jesus to say, the main thing I'm looking for is evangelists. He did kind of say that in other other parts of the Bible. But what he says here is, in verse 24, true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. That's how this woman encountered. God ultimately is looking for worshippers. Because he knows worshippers make the best evangelists the most natural evangelist, the most grateful evangelist, the most secure and poised and calm and courageous evangelists. We want to be worshippers whose hearts are set ablaze. That's what it partly means by our spirits. We don't simply accrue cognitive truth, though truth is vital to get into here. The Holy Spirit, because it also means that as well, he comes right now and fans into flame truth so that truth lives ablaze in our spirits. And we worship with both, as both. 
people of emotions and spirit as well as truth, the Holy Spirit fanned into flame of truth of the gospel and reminds us of all the reasons we have to be grateful and secure and confident and peaceful and humble. So before we make the message of Jesus' living waters known, let's drink of those living waters ourselves. It's okay if you're feeling dry. It's part of the ups and downs of the Christian life. You're still commissioned, and you're still invited to come and drink in these moments, to be freshly satisfied yourself, so that in the language of previous eras of King's Church, we can commend what we indeed cherish. We can say, I found this to be satisfied. I found a meaning of life that no suffering can take away from me. I found a love in the Father that is genuinely perfect and content. I found a self-giving love that never fails or falters. And it satisfies the kind of heart, the kind of love that I'm searching for. But I know I can't give it, and yet I can receive it. Come and drink in these moments. Brothers and sisters, friends, King's Church family, let's be worshippers of spirit and truth who encounter Jesus and evangelize from the place of encounter. Let's be like that wonderful, what a wonderful uh, old lady that was in that hospital who pointed Francis Collins towards the possibility of God. I can only assume she had found Christ to be so sufficient and beautiful and gracious and powerful and true that when nearing the end of her life and going through such suffering she found that he was there to help her and minister to her and she was confident that she was a commissioned one so it was the most natural thing in the world to say I found Jesus to help me doctor with your great big mind what have you found that's going to help you that's who we are people that find Jesus to be good and satisfying and then we learn how to do that and to other people. Can we stand? Ross is going to lead us in worship. And we're just going to do that. We're going to worship. If you feel God stirring you to bring things of him, of his word, of prophecy and so forth, come and do that. And we'll see how he leads us to respond. Jesus, we thank you for you. <laughs> you are our hope. You are the reason that we have, that we're in the family of God. You are all that we have, and yet you are everything, all at the same time. Would we be a family who so love you, worship you, and cherish you, that we begin to make you known in peaceful, courageous, gutsy, loving, sacrificial ways? because we want this good news, this incredible message of life-giving satisfaction. We so want it to be heard and received by this community that you've called us to reach. So catch us up in drinking ourselves of this living water. Amen.